1: in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now,
2: here's Gene Steinberg. So, Chris O'Brien is absent without official leave again on this episode. Now, he tells me that he's, of course, in a new home, and the Internet's not quite working yet. So he's kind of stuck. And other than opening the window and screaming loudly, which I realize some of us might feel like doing from time to time, that however is the best he can do so hopefully he'll be back next week we do have peter robbins joining us this week and we've got a lot of things to talk to him about but one of the things we're not going to really get back into is the issues regarding Rendlesham and his association with co-author larry warren and if anyone who was interested in that he did give me a copy of a long paper that he wrote on the subject 28 pages worth And we've posted it at the Paracast forums under the thread called Ask Peter Robbins in the Paracast forums. So check out the document there. Hopefully that answers all your questions and we can move on. But I did want to ask you, Peter, in a general sense here. You know, sometimes we get involved in these older UFO cases, that being 1980, Cash Landrum being 1980, Roswell, 1947. Do you think we focus in general too much on some of these older cases in trying to understand UFOs?
3: Uh, Good question. I think a lot of it has to do with the spirit of the inquiry and what you're actually trying to uh, find or deduce or uh, bring to the surface that either has not been explored or if you have new information on what we'll call a dated case... It can be very important. A lot of these things I don't consider time sensitive. And in fact, if I think about it, my habit is much more often than not going back into the archives or uh, lingering questions about the subject in the broader sense or issues around it rather than you know the sexiest, newest, most exotic claims or cases or breaking stories. For myself anyway, I, I see myself as an investigative writer most that the the contributions that I think I make that have been the most lasting uh, have been tackling subjects that are couched in post-war history uh, and aimed at um, intelligent, open-minded skeptics who, like most people in our culture are subject to, being at effect of what I call the UFO ridicule factor. That, of course, we know they're not real because, you know, society tells us that and everything that we've read in official media has underscored that over the years. Obviously, I'm not talking about folks who are deeply involved in the work. And I hope that they also benefit from what i do to try to ground important cases or important stories in real documentation um a history of real people locating it and presenting it more like a legal case i figure if i can get somebody through that first door and into the allegorical foyer where they can begin to say to themselves hmm that was something that's making me think Maybe there is more to this than um, I had really thought about. And as a result, I'm more interested in moving forward and learning more about it.
2: Do you think, though, now in the 21st century, people even believe what the government or the media tells them anymore?
3: I think that is a huge problem. We have entered a full-fledged age of conspiracy and a government that counters Critiques of it by saying that's fake news or an alternate fact. It's getting very more and more Orwellian, not to mention the fact that the internet itself, while one step away from magic for most of us that are not tech heads and a source of endless information on anything, is very much a double edged sword. I'm an analog person in a digital world the way I see it, and my first resource. Is a damn good library of actual real books, publications, archive materials that I'm always building, and I augment it by going online. But I go to printed sources that have stood the test of time more often than not before I will try to validate something online. So many of the things that are posted really have no provenance. Witnesses are um, spoken of, but They don't step forward. We just hear that they exist in this day and age. Anybody that knows how to use Photoshop halfway can create a fairly compelling still or moving image that, you know, um, some years back would have had a lot of us believing it was authentic because it looks so good. I think all that changed with, you know, kind of the age of um, Jurassic Park and the like, where... We can see things on the screen or on the printed page, and they look as good as anything in what we'll laughingly call the world of reality, but in fact, they're complete hokum.
2: Of course, we also have augmented reality and virtual reality, and still somewhat removed from reality, but I have a feeling that someday you'll be able to be taken somewhere artificially, and you won't know the difference between that and what we regard as reality.
3: Well, we're probably there right now in the sense that um, let's say that uh, you're in a neutral situation, you know, um, in a bed or whatever. And, you know, you're you're not uh, walking around and you have a great, you know, um, I I don't even know what they call them. But those things that you put on, that's like a huge monster um, kind of head wrap. And you are seeing an image in three dimensions that you can turn around um, and see the back of it, that kind of thing. Um, and it plays out. Uh, maybe that's not exactly what you're talking about, but I'm sure we're headed there. It, it certainly makes sense that that is in our future. Uh, Lord knows we probably have it already, but it's not available you know, as a download for consumers quite yet.
2: Well, of course, those big goggles are very clumsy and everything. But I'm thinking here, when you talk about a faux reality, creating some kind of reality, and you've had a lot of experience investigating abduction cases. Yep. How much of that do you think is something generated externally, but isn't what we think it is, or isn't what the recipient, the percipient, thinks it is?
3: Well, if you're talking... Actual, real abduction cases with individuals who have had lifelong experiences, uh, and very likely their parents have, and their children may or are, and there is physical evidence to back it up, and um, witness accounts that support it. um, Scans reveal an implant in a place that's impossible to get to technically or. Um, more than possible to get to. I think we're dealing with a very real three-dimensional situation and not some alternate reality, if you will.
2: So this isn't ET messing with us somehow?
3: Well, whether it's from another planet, another universe, another dimension is purely speculative, although I think it's naive to think that Some of these other intelligences are not extraterrestrial in nature, although uh, that seems to be uh, a uh, wonderfully uh, contested theory right now. Um, But yeah, I think they are real events happening to real people in real time and in real space. There may be other things that are going on, certainly, but the ones that I spent years investigating. Uh, as bud Hopkins assistant and certainly on my own, I think the ones that are genuinely anomalous and authentic fall in that category.
2: We've got investigator Peter Robbins joining us. We have a lot more to talk about here. I want to remind you we also have a second radio show called After the Paracast, part of Paracast Plus. You can find more if you go to plus dot theparacast dot com, that's plus dot theparacast dot com. Chris O'Brien Is waiting for his internet. You're in the Paracast. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy.
1: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
2: We have Peter Robbins joining us, and we're kind of catching up on his work and the stuff he's been involved with lately in his various investigations into the UFO mystery. And I brought up abductions and whether the reality that's painted in those abductions, whatever the cause is, what these experiencers are really encountering or what. Now, the other thing I was thinking about here when you mentioned the so-called alien implants and the late Roger Lear, Dr. Roger Lear, Oh yeah, spent a number of years investigating that. He was mm-hmm. on the PowerCast four times over the years. Yeah, great guy. And unfortunately, no longer with us. So looking mm-hmm. at his work now, any sense of what we have left in terms of evidence? What does it show? Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. Roger, who uh, professionally was a podiatric surgeon who became very interested in in the UFO subject as I recall fairly early on in his life Um, but you know as a side interest broke new ground becoming the first credentialed medical person retrieving at the request of individuals these anomalous objects from people's bodies and he worked very closely with Bud Hopkins over the years he would come to New York sometimes. I remember a wonderful period of time when I was working as an off-Broadway theater manager, and he and Bud used to come to the theater and just have a grand old time. He was a very social guy, but he had tremendous courage, Sheen. He risked his reputation and wrote two, I feel, very important books. Well, think of it this way. If you were to just stick a foreign object in, you know, subcutaneously under the skin, the body would send out a warning an infection might set in. White blood um, cells would rush to the area. It could become red, swollen, infected. How is it that in the world of implants, and I say implants here, related to the anomalous aspect of the subject because we human beings um, have been working away on implants for probably 25 years or so that I'm aware of, but he was the person who established after careful study that there is an incredibly uh, strong membrane on the implants that he extracted from people who had stepped forward with a history of having these abduction experiences that was the equivalent of a stealth coating. The body simply never recognized that they were there. And as such, they went unnoticed unless they showed up in a CAT scan, an x-ray, a nuclear scan, or that kind of thing. I think his contributions were pioneering and remain more relevant than ever. To backtrack a little bit, though, 20-odd years ago, I um, was sent an article in an agricultural journal, a publication aimed at farmers, and it was for a brand new product. It was about the size of a quarter, and it was simply a lojack of sorts um, to be inserted in a sterilized slit in a cow's ear and then heal up. Farmers would have a receiver. And if you had a piece of livestock that wandered off of your property, you could know where it was. Very good. We now see that there are companies that have developed these things that are now about the size of the ones that we originally saw well before we were making them uh, or were turning up in the bodies of people with abduction histories that are no bigger than a BB or a grain of rice. And there's certainly understandable speculation about what they're about. There aren't a whole bunch of options. Tracking, control, data storage uh, all come to mind. I continue to follow this story because I think it is very New World Ordery. In fact, if anybody scans down my Facebook page, about a week and a half or so ago, I received um, a small film clip from a tech company that is making these. And they are being voluntarily tried by a, uh, a corporate group of orf- office workers, I think in Holland, who are embracing the experience because you don't have to have a code to enter a security door, you just wave your hand in front of it and the like. I think the target for marketing these things terrestrially also is a double-edged sword. I have seen tech ads that aim at prospective buyers who are either wealthy individuals who are concerned, and I mean very wealthy individuals, concerned about the possibility of their children being kidnapped And this little sucker would go into your kid and, you know, you could find out where they are. Law enforcement could catch the criminals hypothetically and your child would be returned. At the other end, it is these devices are now quietly being marketed to private prison systems. What better way um, to deal with a three-time loser, a life prisoner, a convicted murderer, whatever, or anybody else you want who's in your prison system, and the heck with voluntary, insert one of these things into them. If they escape, same thing. You can track them down without bloodhounds or without a uh, a lot of money being spent. You just follow where they are. You don't uh, need anyway, an ankle oh, bracelet anymore. Well, that's right. This is real technology and exists now, although in the civilian sector here, very few of us, hear about it or aware of it or read the highly specific technical journals where this kind of advertising pitch would appear. But as far as the truly anomalous ones, the ones that I have seen handled are not much bigger than a BB or a grain of rice. With the exception of only one that I've ever seen, no moving parts, intelligent speculation gives us several choices or maybe they function in all ways, control tracking data storage and whatever else anybody can come up with
2: so you think here if et is a couple of thousand years ahead of us the implant the insert would we even be able to see it though that's the thing i kind of worry about here i mean well you're looking at the technology we have today micro miniaturization all these tiny chips that we put in the supercomputers that we call smartphones and now we've got E.T. being 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 years ahead of us. Or 3 million. Whatever it is, would we even be able to detect the presence of anything well, on someone?
3: That's one of those questions that sort of bites its own tail. If there are ones that are at that level of technological marvel, then, of course, we don't know that they're there. However, many, many of these things have turned up some of them removed, on x-rays, in CAT scans, uh, in nuclear scans, and, you know, they're there in people's bodies, almost always without a sign of entry, you know, some surgical scar or something, although that is occasionally the case. And, you know, they're here now and they're real and those ones we do know
2: about. We've got more to come with Peter Robbins and some more updated things about his ongoing investigations. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
10: Everything you've been told about identity theft prevention is a flat-out lie. No one can prevent identity theft. No one. Go to LibertyID.com and use the promo code trial for 60 days free. Cancel at any time. Liberty ID is the industry leader in identity theft restoration. Liberty ID fixes the fallout for you. Liberty ID does all the work, but you have to be prepared. Go to LibertyID.com, promo
11: code trial. LibertyID.com. Are you one of the 70% of Americans that want to own your own business, afraid to leave the security of your current job to pursue your dreams? I'm Pharmacist Keith. Dr. Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy, and myself, want to show you a low-cost way to create your own business, working around your current job schedule, creating extra income for you and your family by joining his crusade, spreading his message of better health. To learn more, visit radio.recordedvideo.com. Radio.recordedvideo.com. That's radio.recordedvideo.com.
13: you may be at the top of their hit list. So don't take your tax debt lightly because it will not go away on its own. The IRS can seize your bank accounts, your home, and even shut down your business. Call our tax experts today at 1-800-765-9681 and let us deal with the IRS while you focus on your business. That's 1-800-765-9681 Again, that's eight hundred seven six five nine six eight one. 800 765 9681
14: We all
5: Hi, it's Grant Cameron from presidentialufo.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
2: Okay, thank you, Peter Robbins, joining us this week. Chris O'Brien's absent again. He doesn't have internet, or barely has internet at his new home. So I understand the feeling. I can imagine here. I don't have the greatest internet, and... Over the last few weeks, I've been uploading episodes of the PowerCast to our new official PowerCast channel on YouTube. Full episodes. I get a few up every day. That's the best I can do. We're up to about 90 so far. The goal is to get every episode from 2010 on, we're talking about 350 episodes or so, up there in the next couple of months. So look it up. Just do a search for the PowerCast on YouTube. And you'll find it. We have Peter Robbins. We're catching up. We're talking about the so-called alien implants found in some people who say they were abducted and trying to determine what they are. I guess RFID chips or something like that. They've got a microchip in my dog right now. But I dare say it's probably a heck of a lot larger than the ones you've found. Now, that's an important thing too. These tiny little things that have been recovered Are you able to use some kind of super microscope to see what they're made of? Um, Well,
3: I am not involved in analyzing implants. It's not my expertise. To the best of my knowledge, and I would have to go back to my conversations with Roger on this primarily, um, there's no material that any of them that I'm aware of or have been publicized or brought to the public's attention, no material that they're made of that's not found here on Earth.
2: Which doesn't necessarily mean they're from Earth.
3: Oh, exactly. Um, We have the basic materials uh, found on Earth all over the place out there.
2: (laughs) Of course, that's another point here. We look at these things and say, well, if the materials are made of what we can find here on Earth, they couldn't possibly be alien. But then again, on another planet, they might have the same elements.
3: Well, of course they do. We know that from the world of endless meteorites. And um, now, having sent probes to outer planets in our solar system, we're dealing with the same materials, the same metals, the same um, molecular structures, uh, the same primordial, you know, soup that created life here on Earth. If there are brand new materials, which, you know, is a staple of science fiction, and I think, um, wish fulfillment for a lot of folks who want to believe that things are maybe even a little more exotic than they are, and they're pretty damned exotic. Um, Yeah, I'm not aware of any scientific breakthroughs that have, you know, in terms of astrophysics that have presented material you know that's crashed here on earth or been brought back you know from some remote planetoid or asteroid or you know visit by a wonderful robot spacecraft to another planet in our solar system that has revealed any brand new material that we were not aware of or or don't have here on earth
2: which doesn't necessarily mean they weren't produced on earth i'm just thinking here though that something of this nature could be undetectable if ET is that far advanced. That's a question people have when they're skeptically looking at UFO abductions, that the so-called aliens are not displaying what appears to be very advanced technology. Examination instruments tend to be primitive. Or is that all an image that hides what they really did? That's why I was pointing Um, out before whether they're seeing an artificial reality. It may represent in some way what they're actually doing, but it's not actually what they did.
3: I've never heard their technology described as primitive. Um, I'm not sure what point you're getting to here, Gene. Um, My years and years of study on the abduction phenomena and networking With Kathleen Martin, um, um, Bud for many, many years, of course, um, and working close by him on literally the investigation into the claims of hundreds of people uh, over the 35 years we were friends and the time in there that I worked with him, um, that it is what it seems to be. Real people are being taken by other intelligences, brought to other locations, generally assumed to be, but not always, on board a craft um, and examined or, you know, having something um, placed in them, um, suggestions made into their head, and then brought back to where they were. Um, You're sort of talking, I think, more like kind of a matrix idea that all quote-unquote reality is invented and that this is way beyond you know the nuts and bolts of what I'm talking about if so um, I can only speculate on it no more and no less than anybody else it's not an area that I'm qualified to speak on really
2: Speaking of abductions, looking at Bud Hopkins' work in the years after he left us, have we learned anything new or defined anything or had to unlearn anything from the results he (laughs) achieved?
3: Um, Well, his his contributions were massive. He is, in effect, um, the first person to really codify and bring forward the beginnings of uh, a scientific study. Of the abduction phenomenon. Certainly, I think the most complex and in many ways the most troubling aspect of UFO studies. Um, I would dare say that people um, like Kathleen Martin and another uh, brilliant abduction specialist who Kathleen um, co wrote a book with several years back, Denise Stoner. And that book is the Alien Abduction Files, and should be in the library of anybody who is serious about wanting to learn more about this subject. Um, I think that they have built on some of the earlier information. I, I'm trying to remember. I think Kathleen is also head of abduction studies for MUFON. So yes, a great is. deal of yeah, a great deal of data comes to her, and um, for me. She is about the top person in the field internationally right now. And um, I think she would be able to give you considerably uh, more detailed information on what has come forward, um, what, what new information has been added to that database or what aspects of discoveries based on uh, the pioneering work of people like Bud and Dr. John Mack and a handful of others
2: should tell you, of course, that Kathleen's been on the Powercast, and we know her. She's a gracious woman and we've had some very enjoyable sessions with her. She comes on like once a year and we Mm -hmm. do catch up with her about that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to remember. We had Denise Stoner on too. I'm not sure. Is she the woman who shared an abduction experience with somebody else aboard the spaceship um, and um, then um, meets that person in real life? Is that um, the one?
3: Well, there are quite a lot of people that fall into that category. This is wild, where they're like from different
2: parts Denise of the country. Is, they didn't share they didn't, you know, together happen to have the experience. They separately have the experience, ended up in the same place, and then met after the experience was over.
3: I I can't speak with certainty of Denise's experience. I she hasn't shared them all with me, although we spent um a week together. With Kathleen last year um, at Kathleen and her husband Charlie's home in Florida. And um, it was one of the most memorable weeks I've had in years. Um, I think she may have had an experience like that. But um, Denise makes no bones about the fact that the fact that she is an abduction researcher was not something that she arrived at because of intellectual curiosity. These kinds of experiences have happened to her repeatedly since she was young. So um, that may well be part of um,
2: her history. We've got more to come with Peter Robbins. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in... The Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN.
2: Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on this special deal at Namecheap.com. Namecheap.com.
16: Are you looking to become more self-sufficient? Then you need to have your own energy source. The Solark EMP Hardened Generator is automatic, maintenance-free, and reduces your monthly electric bill. You can also take it off-grid when you go camping. Contact PortableSolarLLC.com or call for details at 972-575-8875 today. Portable Solar LLC gives you everything you need to start using solar energy in less than one hour. Solark EMP Hardened
8: Solar Generator
16: Energy Insurance. For your family or business, call Portable Solar LLC today.
8: Hello. Hi, this is Joshua P. Warren, author of The Poor Man's Paranormal, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. We've
2: got Peter Robbins joining us. Chris O'Brien is without the Internet. What would our world be without the Internet? You ever think about that, Peter? where you like real books going to real physical libraries and so many things yep. right now are online. But right now we all have to have our smartphones. We have our computers, no. <laughs> but you don't.
3: No, I, you're talking to one of the few people left on the planet probably who still has a dumb phone, although I'll have to cave sooner or later. But yeah, my computer and um, you know, social networking and chasing things down on the internet have become part of the routine of almost all of us, one way or another, whether it's for business, pleasure, um, our own personal obsession. The thing that I think is so interesting is when we remember, if we can remember, when this was brand new in our lives and the most exotic thing imaginable, like our first, you know, hearing about cell phones for the first time. Often uh, an incredible luxury. Remember the first computers uh, that were available to um, regular consumers were extremely expensive. My sister Helen was the first person I knew who had a, you know, home computer. And I think it cost about as much as a Volkswagen at the time. Volkswagens were also a lot cheaper at the time. Um, But how quickly these things that were one step away from a dream, a DVD, you know, who would have imagined? then become so routine and so mundane that they fall to the back of our mind and, you know, our charming old technology in uh, uh,
2: a fairly quick piece of time. My first home Macintosh computer, I bought an Apple Macintosh, a color display, big hard drive, 100 megabytes. <laughs> OK, big hard drive, laser printer, the cheaper one, not the more expensive one. Mm-hmm. This was probably nineteen eighty-nine. Mm-hmm. Fourteen thousand five hundred dollars. Oh to, my god. Right. Now put things in perspective. You mentioned a cheap car. Like the cheapest Volkswagen today is a Jetta. They sell for about seventeen thousand, but because Volkswagen had the diesel engine problem, they kind of discount for fifteen thousand. So you can buy the cheapest cars nowadays are fourteen or fifteen thousand. And the average car is $33,500. But remember, that was a cheap Mac. If you had gotten something like what they call a Macintosh 2 and all this other stuff, you could bring that price up to twenty or 30000 This was 1989. <laughs> would get you a luxury car, get you a Mercedes-Benz.
3: <laughs> Amazing. I actually, as long as we're kind of on this nostalgia tangent, I remember many years ago when my father who is a small independent businessman, came home from work with this piece of technology that might have been from Star Trek as far as we were concerned. It was um, a handheld device from Texas Instruments, and it was a digital battery-operated calculator that In his office, they were using the same technology they were probably using at the same at the turn of the century, like everybody, where you punch in the numbers and then you pull a crank and then you punch in more numbers, et cetera, and it only costs $400. You can pick the same thing up now for you know $298 in any discount store. Technology outdates itself every 18 months or so, from what I understand, in many areas. And again, we blithely go along and take it all for granted in a way. One great electromagnetic pulse or a tiny little nuclear war or a major you know solar flare has the potential to knock out a lot of what we now see as essential digital communication, business, record-keeping technology. Uh, I have friends that laugh at me because, and I'm looking at it right now, because they know I still have an address book with addresses and phone numbers written in, in ink to back up, you know, my digital files. Not that I'll be able to use it very much if Everything goes down and we lose the post office or whatever. But there's nothing wrong with having a certain reliance on older technology to back up cutting edge technology.
2: And the problem with cutting age technology also is privacy. It opens you up to all sorts of things that maybe you wouldn't think of if you have a physical piece of paper in your back pocket. Now, Mrs. Steinberg, after all these years, she still writes me notes on a notepad. And getting that notepad is not easy. They don't have it at Walmart anymore. We have to go to Amazon to buy several of these books, these tiny books, these five by seven notes or six by nine or something like that. And she has these pens and she's writing the physical note of my agenda for that day. Now, if she has an iPad, she can enter it, send me a note, and I get reminders on my iPhone about it. But no, she hands me a note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it. (laughs) We'll have to put you two together, have a conversation about the old (laughs) days because this is really it. But we're also, I think, surrendering a lot of our privacy to have instant communications, except, of course, when the internet is down.
3: Well, no question about it. The whole thing of hacking and of viruses. I remember years ago when I first heard about this creepy phenomenon called computer viruses. And it took me a while to really grasped the fact that there were people with nothing better to do than screw the rest of us up, hurt our potential to, um, you know, communicate or record keep. And it wasn't even at a time that they were getting a benefit from it, just sort of a a screw you um, kind of look what I can do. Yeah, um, we now know we can all be monitored. We all are monitored, potentially at any given time no matter how much we think that might not be the case, it does speak about or speak to how in simpler times by, let's say, writing a letter and sealing it well and sending it to somebody, I guess it could be steamed open in some ways or, you know, put on a light box and photographed and then, you know, sort of reconstructed as you unfolded your threefold piece of typing paper, a line paper, what have you. If there's a will, there's a way. But yeah, Big Brother is always watching us all, all the time. Some of us more than others.
2: Now, you and I both know a fellow by the name of Jim Mosley, who died some years back. And Jim would pull an interesting stunt. He'd send physical letters. He never had a computer, never had yeah, a cell phone. I remember. <laughs> never had voicemail. He yep. used a real Electric typewriter from the 1980s. He'd buy a few of them to always have it, have a plentiful supply of ribbons. Okay. So, what he would do is we send you a letter and he put what he called paranoid marks on them. What is a paranoid Mm -hmm. mark? Well, you have two lines going across the flap of the envelope. But what he would do is he'd move the flap a little bit off center and then make the two marks. Then he'd move them to the right position and then seal the envelope. So you'd Mm -hmm. think someone must have opened it because the two marks are not aligned. Yeah. And he called them paranoid marks.
3: Well, Jim, bless his heart, was, besides being uh, a raconteur and a commentator and an observer of the UFO scene and a a bit of a mischief maker, um, he liked to rattle people's cages. He had a very dry wit and a A good sense of humor. He'd poke fun at anybody. He was an equal opportunity employer at um, taking the mickey out of people, as the British say, and, um, you know, looked at the whole scene, Uh, I think, sometimes as the Joker, you know, so to say, uh, in the pack. I I liked him. He was a, a real character, and we have very few people like him anymore, or if at all.
2: He was my first employer,
3: Ah, the saucer smear. Yes.
2: Before saucer smear, there was saucer news. Ah, And he had an office in the mid-60s at 303 Fifth Avenue. (laughs) Now, to give you a perspective how generous Jim was, in the mid-60s, it ages me, the minimum wage was $1.50 an hour. Today, if the minimum wage had kept up with inflation, it'd be $19 an hour. I was getting $5 an hour, which would Uh be like getting like $65 an hour now. (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah. I am in the wrong business.
3: He was a nice guy. Also, seriously, one of the things that fascinated me about Jim, given how he grew up and his family life, was that he came through things as a very positive spirit and somebody who did no harm, uh, was a character. But his father oswald mosley as i recall was a major player in the american fascist nazi movement leading up to world war ii let's go more into
2: that into jim's father tell you some stories about that too we've got more to come with peter robbins investigative reporter studying ufos and more i'm gene steinberg you're in the paracast (laughs)
18: At Humalife, we believe your health is your wealth. That's why we offer an exclusive, potent, and pure selection of OMRI-certified 100% organic, humic, and fulvic acid concentrates. These two acids stop viruses and harmful bacteria and increase frequency, vibration, and vitality. In fact, they're called the missing link to your health. Pure liquid organic ATP energy rebuilds and regrows the immune system. You are the doctor at Humalife. You know best because you are the test. Find out
7: more at HumalifeUSA.com. That's HumalifeUSA.com. If there's a toxic chemical, biological, gas smoke emergency while traveling at home or on your job, are you protected? Are you prepared? There are over 400,000 fires in the USA every year. Up to 85% of all deaths in a fire are due to smoke inhalation. Three minutes without air, and we as humans will die. Be prepared and escape safely with our Safe Escape Smoke Hoods, giving you up to 60 minutes of breathable air protection. Order yours online at ASE-Safety.com. That's ASE-Safety.com. And get up to 40% off plus free ship.
1: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
2: Okay, just to correct the name, Major General George Van Horn Mosley. And he was also a big muckety-muck in the U.S. Army. And I Mm -hmm. guess after he was involved in the fascist movement, he was anti-Semitic, this guy. Heavily so. And he probably was drummed out of whatever position he had in the government during the Roosevelt administration. But I saw letters that his dad had written to his mom. Now, Jim's mom died when he was 19 years old. And so he lived on his trust fund. So these letters suggested that Jim, being the black sheep of the family, they wanted to send him to military boarding school. Mm. Okay, because... Straighten him out. You know, his dad's an old military guy. Straighten this guy out. It never happened. But you can see the kind of attitude his dad took. But he lived with his mom. I get the impression he and his father may have come to terms later in life. But they surely did not get along
3: in the early days. Um, Again, major event that I remember his father being involved in from my readings of New York city history is that he was the main player at a huge pro-nazi rally um, in the years before world war ii at a very packed madison square garden at the time and you know um, obviously people of his ilk either backed away or left the public stage once we went to war and uh, anti-fascism became the cause of the united states
2: and Jim was so totally unlike that. He embraced oh, everyone. No. He liked everyone.
3: He was kind and funny and humble and, you know, like making people laugh. I used to get irregular letters from him. Uh, postcards were the things that I got from him most with just a line or two, all calculated, you know, to make you smile. And there is something really rather Old fashioned in a very nice way about people who don't take themselves too seriously and are willing to have a little fun at their own expense rather than other people's expense. Um, Every once in a while, the saucer smear really would come down on somebody in the field. uh, But more often than not, it was, you know, kind of a UFO gossipy sort of publication and very homemade looking and most of us, really, I've still got a file full of them that I haven't looked at in years. But I, I don't think there was anybody else quite like him. Uh, certainly not in, um, in ufology or the early days that I'm aware of.
2: We were remembering Jim Mosley. Let's move on to some other topics here, Peter. And it's been a while since you've been on, so I want to catch up on things. In mm-hmm. your liner notes that you sent me, suggesting what we might talk about, you mentioned the origins of the UFO ridicule factor, something that you've investigated. And that really takes us back to, what, 1947.
19: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and they had specks before your eyes, I guess. Among other things. (laughs)
3: Um, Yeah, I, I think most people that become interested in the subject of UFOs sooner or later do start to wonder about how this otherwise simple question. Um, I saw something in the sky that I couldn't identify, became wired up in the Western and the world mindset with, gee, you must be um, a mystic or a liar or a faker, or you're looking to become famous, or um, one of my favorites uh, that Philip Klass came up with, uh, a desire to feel special. It's so counterintuitive. It makes no sense at all. And It was a thought that came and went for me for years, and at a certain point, some years back, I started to think about what was it, really? How did it happen? What set it in motion? Well, probably the summer of 1947 certainly set it in motion, but how did it come to pass that the American people, then the Western world, and arguably most of world culture at this point, uh, or a good part of it, still has it wired up? That haha, flying saucers and little green men. And my serious interest in the subject began in the 1980s. And I ended up spending a lot of time back then in the New York Times newspaper morgue, the location where they kept. All of the data on every issue of the New York Times that had ever been published This is in Midtown Manhattan and uh, an annex of it was at the Main Branch Library on 42nd Street. The way that you found articles, because certainly in 1947, the Times was without question the most influential newspaper in the United States. And in terms of alternate media there wasn't a lot of competition. You had NBC News under David Sarnoff, uh, CBS News. These were radio, of course, no television yet. Other major newspaper families, the Copley family um, in Boston, the Hearst Syndicate, also controlling hundreds of papers in the United States and San Francisco, and a small clique of individuals. And I thought, let's see what the Times history is of this. Maybe I can draw a bead on it by seeing how one major centrally powerful venue covered the subject. And you would go through these huge, really large, pebble-covered ledgers. And everything was cross-referenced with index numbers. There were certain terms that were go-to terms. First, it was still almost 10 years before the term unidentified flying object or UFO would be used. So didn't bother with that. Um, unidentified aerial disks, unidentified aerial phenomena, and spaceships, and extraterrestrials. I found out fairly quickly that because of an absence of any reference to spaceships were extraterrestrials in the New York Times indexes in 1947, which I found very curious at first, until I stumbled on a reference references to these words at the time the words didn't exist they were always two words extra terrestrial and space ships and you would then copy out reference uh, numbers from their earliest articles editorials letters to the editor photo captions what have you bring them to the librarian who would then give you a roll of microfiche like that some of us are old enough to have you know, done re- you research subjects in high school or whatever, and you would find the article and then you'd put a coin in and you'd print it out. And I began to build a database that way. Other projects took over. And when I went back to the subject in the 90s, everything had been digitized. So it was quicker to locate the articles uh, and other pieces of information. At the same time, because they were digitized, when you blew them up and printed them out, they often pixelated. So I actually relied a certain amount on the digital files anyway. And I ended up with, I don't know, like 220 separate pieces of information from front page articles to uh, a tiny little piece on, you know, page 23 or whatever. And I put them in order, Gene, and I read them beginning to end. And then I read them again, and then I read them again. I, I knew what I was looking for, and being that my training was as an artist, um, I was used to looking out of the box rather than in it, and I knew there must be a pattern, or there was a chance of a pattern, but if I could deduce it, maybe I could come to a conclusion. And there was a pattern, which was, I would say, to this day it's affected being very kind to the New York Times in excess of 95% of their UFO-related coverage, a um, a pattern where an event or a sighting is described, and then um, an authority. And for the first years, the authorities were quoted as astronomers, mental health professionals,
2: scientists.
3: Their names were never given. It was just an authority uh, in the area of um, psychology, has said.
2: And we'll go into more of this ridicule factor. With Peter Robbins and Gene Steinberg, you're in... The um, Paracast.
3: Attack of the Rockoids
1: has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget.
12: Investing is a long-term process. How many times can you think of in the last decade that the stock market has destroyed retirement funds for people just like you and me? For your existing IRA, you need the security that gold has provided for centuries. Remember, gold has never been worth zero. Capital Gold would like to introduce you to the Home Storage Gold IRA. It's a self-directed IRA set up with all the protection and tax benefits of an LLC. But the big difference in this IRA is you invest in gold and you hold it in your possession. You can't do that with stocks. That's security. You can transfer any type of IRA hassle-free in days. Please call right now and learn more and we'll waive the $500 setup fee and give you a free safe to store your gold. Call 800-281-4224. 800-281-4224, 800-281-4224, that's 800-281-4224.
15: Get a 12, 36, or 48-month supply. Or get items individually and still save big. You're getting soap products twice as good as what you're using now. Earth-friendly and natural soaps. Your family deserves the best. Happiness is 5starsoap.com. Why not put your money up the drain for a change?
16: Being self-reliant is about being prepared and to do what you need to have your own source of renewable energy. Portable Solar LLC offers the most powerful EMP-hardened solar system on the market that is transportable from place to place, and the best part, it's very affordable. Contact them at PortableSolarLLC.com or call for details at 972-575-8875. Arc EMP-hardened solar generator energy insurance for your family or business. Call Portable Solar LLC today or go to PortableSolarLLC.com to check out their patent-pending technology.
1: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
2: We have Peter Robbins, and before we get back, talking about his research into the morgue of the New York Times. The old gray lady, as they once referred to the times, now it's very heavily digitized. We have a second radio show out there, also digitized, called After the Powercast, where it can be color commentary special interviews. We've done a lot of special interviews, extended interviews in recent weeks. And the only way for you to hear that show is to become a subscriber to the Paracast Plus at plus.theparacast.com for more info. That's P L U S.Theparacast.com. For a modest subscription fee, we also offer you the advertising free version of this show. So, Peter Robbins, tell us more about the New York Times. So, they're quoting so called experts, people with titles. Yeah.
3: Also, Editorial decisions were made that were reflected in the coverage or lack of coverage. One could say the same about any major stories breaking in any major newsroom or news venue. And the Times chose not to even begin to cover the subject, not beginning with the Kenneth Arnold sightings in Washington state on June 24th of 1947, which preceded Roswell by a week and a half, but the initial reports of a crash, a unidentified craft, possibly from parts unknown, in the vicinity of the town of Roswell, New Mexico, they didn't cover these stories where almost every other newspaper in the country was. And they began their coverage, uh, not without some irony, on July 4th, 1947, with an article that the Pentagon had solved the brief mystery of this report of a crash of something from who knows where in New Mexico, uh, and that it was just a weather balloon, and that uh, a certain military officer had confused fragments of the weather balloon with, you know, something else. Almost every article that they then published, and they were frantically publishing articles every day for months, or every few days for months, was filled with sarcasm, condescension, innuendo, the worst kind of pseudoscience, phony explanations that would make your eyes roll, but they kept clubbing away at it, and the New York Times is the New York Times, and now it is certainly still an influential newspaper, but there's a lot more news sources, most of them problematic, to put it mildly, but back then, it was, again, the most powerful, respected, influential newspaper in the United States, began publishing before the Civil War. I had thought that, in my mind, that they'd come back on and off and do it, and I saw the same type of coverage reflected increasingly in other major national news venues, I, should note, and I think it's a point of real interest, that local newspapers, your village or your town newspaper that came out once a week, those papers overall treated the subject with respect because inevitably they were talking about one of their citizens in their town or village who had reported something, who was somebody people knew and wasn't doing it to get a laugh. But because they had seen something that, you know, was in the news and that they didn't understand and went to their police department or wherever, and it ended up in the local newspaper. The ridicule there came the week after, in almost always a letter to the editor that, you know, Joe Blow thought he saw one of those flying saucers from Mars. But we all know that the Army Air Corps is on the case because they tell us that and I read in the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. Again, I, I had thought In beginning to ponder this, that they just kept up the silly news reports. We hit 1952, the Robertson panel report, which uh, was a four-day meeting of a CIA uh, committee, which first discussed the idea of a two-pronged educational program, education and debunking. And for anybody that really likes language and the origin of words and things, I know that a 19th century term for saying, you know, that's just silly or that's nonsense is that's a lot of bunk. But I think the first time I have ever come upon the use of the word debunk in any publication or in any reference is in the Robertson panel report in 1952. And then things just went on. And, you know, people just assumed it was nonsense. Well, the brainwashing program the reprogramming program, the intimidation, the ridicule that was immediately drawn as a parallel to the subject. If you think they're real, then you're crazy or delusional or you want to feel special or it was all done before the end of the summer of 1947. It was done and it was reflected in other publications. No newspaper, no magazine, Time, Life, Newsweek, Did a serious study on, wait a minute, what is this about in 1947? If it happened, it never saw the light of day because researchers like myself would have come upon something. It was simply wired up in the American consciousness, then the Western consciousness, that this is nonsense. And if you want to be the subject of ridicule, take it seriously and let people know. That set me to starting to think about why major news organizations made up of people, not like me, who's a self-trained investigative writer, but went to journalism school. They wanted to be reporters. They wanted to be journalists. It was in their blood, the search for the truth, to get an answer to a big question, to uncover a cover-up. That was the thing that drove these people or should have been driving them. How is it that none of them took it upon themselves to go contrary to everybody else? And it made me begin to just apply the best deductive reasoning, critical thinking, regular logic that I could. I don't have proof that I could present as such, but more and more, it became the only answer for me that publishers, in one way or another, let their editors know that they should let their reporters know that this was a subject That should not be taken seriously. It should not be covered as though there was a real chance that these things might, in fact, be what some of us feel they are objects from parts unknown in unimaginably high technology under the control of other intelligences from who knows where. Why would they do that? This was a great story. Well, maybe they were asked to do it. Who would have had the clout to ask them and make it happen? I deduce that there were individuals within the Truman administration, very highly placed individuals and only a handful in a, a small pool of people that had President Truman's absolute trust, who may have made day trips or overnight trips from Washington to New York or Boston or San Francisco and sat down with owners and publishers who in themselves, these were the men who controlled the media, and I say men, because there were no women involved. These were the men who controlled what Americans thought, what they read, and what they assumed about the world around them. Let's uh,
2: go into this, this manipulation of the media. In our next segment with Peter Robbins, Chris O'Brien doesn't have the Internet, and he can't use smoke signals. We have Peter Robbins. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in. The Paracast. The <laughs> Paracast.
6: Peace of mind is easy. There's no medical exam. You'll have lifetime coverage. And your plan can't be canceled as long as you pay your premiums. Call now for free information about our senior plans. Answer a few simple questions and receive approval right on the phone. Plus, call right now and we'll give you a discount prescription card for free. Call 800-557-0158. That's 800-557-0158. Again, 800-557-0158. When fresh
19: liquid whey is processed into a dry powder, the special proteins that make up the whey lose their original shapes. They fold in on themselves and lose their functional value. One World Whey undergoes a technological enhancement that we believe restores these potent proteins back to their original shapes the body can use.
6: I chose to try One World Whey first before going to a doctor who would likely only prescribe drugs. To my delight, it worked. After stabbing pain for years to have it completely gone as a miracle... I'd like to also stress that, for me, it took several months of taking One World Way before I had improvement, and then an entire year for my gut to feel 100% healed. So now I tell my friends, give your body time to make use of the healing power of One World Way.
7: Call 888-988-3325
19: or visit OneWorldWay.com. That's OneWorldWheY.com.
18: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of A.D. After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
2: We're joined by Peter Robbins. Kind of play catch up on a lot of topics. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, in case you're wondering, Rendlesham is off the table. We do have... A thread at our forums at the Paracast, our Paracast Forums at forum.theparacast.com. It's entitled Ask Peter Robbins. There is a 28-page document you can download and get his statement. What he was telling us in the previous segment is that the government representatives of the Truman administration went down to the publishers of major newspapers and they said, Don't take UFOs seriously. I said, that's
3: what I deduce, that's what I think, that's what I believe, and that's really different than saying that it happened. It's Uh, what you
2: believe happened. Yeah.
3: I can't think of anything else, and this is something that I've been working on, on and off, and looking at from any number of angles for years now. The thought that the biggest story of all time, potentially, breaks on the American public, in two years after the end of World War II, not even quite uh, in the Japanese theater, and nobody in the American media is interested in even beginning to take it seriously, it doesn't make sense. It's completely counterintuitive, especially in the world of career journalists working for the biggest newspapers and radio venues in America at the time and then quickly reflected overseas. So what could have caused it? To backtrack slightly, as an investigator, one of my inspirations, some people may find kind of corny, it goes back to when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And as a kid that loved movies, I enjoyed all of the old late 30s, early 40s, until about 44 or so. Sherlock Holmes, um, films that came out of the UK, starring the great British actor Basil Rathbone as Holmes and as his uh, Dr. Watson, a wonderful old character actor named Nigel Bruce. It got me to starting to read Arthur Conan Doyle's wonderful books um, on this great character that he invented named Sherlock Holmes, who was a, as, as everybody knows, a private detective who applied what he called deductive reasoning. problem solving. And one of the aspects of deductive reasoning that really appealed to me as a very nerdy, geeky kid was if you are confronted with a mystery, you don't begin by investigating the most exotic, otherworldly, sexy and wild possibility. You begin by looking and investigating as fully as you can the most mundane, boring, very likely, everyday possibility. You give it a very fair shot. If it does not pan out, then you take one simple step up to the second most boring, mundane, this is probably it, explainable possibility. If you continue to work in that manner and you exhaust all of those conventional possibilities, then things begin to get interesting. And then you're involved in work that may actually lead you to some very exciting possible conclusions. It's time-consuming to do that. It can be incredibly boring, but that's the way I work. And I really tried to wrap my head around any possibilities that would let me understand why every journalist in America chose not to cover in a serious manner. Through the 40s, into the 50s, in good part into the 60s. In the 70s, we had, you know, a couple of television breakthroughs, but even they were hardly heavyweight. And, you know, here we are in this crazy world where now with the internet, uh, a lot of serious interest has grown up around this subject, but a lot of it pretty specious and uncorroborable and very far out. Um, So again, I was left with trying to think about As a student of American history, America in 1947. We were, in fact, the country that many of us dream and wish we were now. We had helped make the world safe for democracy. Without our participation in World War II, we might be speaking German and Japanese now, as would a good part of the rest of the world. And this is the way it would have happened. We had the Marshall Plan in place, an absolutely radical idea where we were taking our money to help our enemies rebuild civil, peaceful societies. And if you look at the histories of Germany and Japan since World War II, in fact, it was a brilliant success, so much so that they have beat the pants off us in great part uh, at different points uh, over the decades um, in terms of economics and the like. But neither one of them has ever started a war or you know, um, gone rogue on, or, or, you know, gone back to their militaristic roots. So we had the nuclear bomb. The summer of 1947 was the summer that the whole idea of containment to use the phrase that was, um, the one being used at the time and developed by a uh, political scientist named George Kennan and published in an article. in fact, This month, 70 years ago, in a foreign affairs uh, magazine called On Containment. It was Kennan who came up with the idea that the Soviets were obviously the next big threat. The Nazis, um, the militaristic Japanese were defeated. But Stalin and the Soviets wanted us dead, 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 as um, uh, Robert De Niro says, uh, wonderfully overacting in um, The Untouchables as Al Capone. And we took it seriously. And Kennan was the one who said, if we can contain the Soviets to the borders that they expanded to into Eastern Europe and the like at the end of World War II, we may be able to avoid a hot or a shooting war and have a cold or a stalemate kind of war. The word cold war emerged then and there. And I think it's interesting to note as a footnote here that the official beginnings of the Cold War per se date from the exact moment in history that the modern age of UFO sightings begins. I think that is a genuine coincidence and not some Machiavellian scheme or something, but that's my own uh, opinion. And there was concern that panic might ensue. If we felt, citizens of this country, that these UFOs, uh, not called that, the flying saucers, flying discs, might be, you know, advanced Soviet technology, that would be very unnerving. We still see references back in some of those old documents to dear old Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater's production of War of the Worlds, which is still worth listening to. Um, And the excuse that was trotted out regularly when it was necessary of the potential of panic, that people couldn't handle it. And and one wonders about that now relative to disclosure. Um, Most of us, and I say that to people in your audience that have studied the subject, taken it seriously, processed it for a long time. Yeah, we're ready, we think, for the announcement to be made. Most of our brothers and sisters are not, and we represent a fairly modest percentage of people in the world. But I can only theorize, Gene, but I think it's it holds water, that several individuals close to Harry Truman, it might have included Vannevar Bush, um, probably the most extraordinarily interesting and influential individual that most Americans have never heard of uh mj-12 number one um president roosevelt's uh technology and science advisor who then went on to become president truman's science and technology advisor uh with credits that you wouldn't believe if you go to a period copy of who's who
2: from the late 40s he fills up two and a half pages of small print let's continue sir Peter Robbins, Gene Steinberg, you're in The Paracast.
9: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
2: Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code.
7: If there's a toxic chemical biological gas smoke emergency while traveling at home or on your job, are you protected? Are you prepared? There are over 400,000 fires in the USA every year. Up to 85% of all deaths on a fire are due to smoke inhalation. Three minutes without air, and we as humans will die. Be prepared and escape safely with our Safe Escape smoke hoods, giving you up to 60 minutes of breathable air protection. Order yours online at ase-safety.com. That's ase-safety.com. And get up to 40% off, plus free shipping.
10: Identity theft is going to ruin your life if you're not prepared. Hi, everyone. This is Paul with Liberty ID. Hey, millions of Americans fall victim every year. Odds are your identity has already been compromised and alerts aren't going to save you. The solution is restoration. And the only company that provides a money-back guarantee is Liberty ID. Go to Liberty ID and use the promo code FREETRIAL for 60 days free. That's libertyid.com, promo code FREETRIAL for 60 days free. Cancel at any time. Liberty ID is the industry leader in identity theft restoration. With a 100% success rate in restoring our subscribers' identities no matter how they're stolen. Liberty ID fixes the fallout for you. Liberty ID does the work, but you have to be prepared. Go to LibertyID.com. Promo code free trial. LibertyID.com.
11: LibertyID.com. Would it be okay if you had two paychecks instead of one? I'm Pharmacist Keith. Dr. Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy and myself, want to show you how to get an extra paycheck every month, creating an extra income that will last for years to come by joining Dr. Wallach's crusade, spreading his message of better health. To learn more, visit radio.recordedvideo.com. That's radio.recordedvideo.com. Radio.recordedvideo.com. Or call 866-257-3105 for a recorded message.
1: This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard
19: of paranormal radio.
2: Okay, you're looking at these early figures connected with the Trump administration, who may have been part of this, and I'll use major key host term, silence group. But do you believe there was an MJ-12, or that those documents were fake, even if maybe they had some resemblance to something factual?
3: Yeah, well, that's a great question. If you don't mind, let me get to that in about two minutes. I think that Bush would have been a likely candidate. I think that the man who was um, in the process of building our Defense Department after dismantling our old War Department um, at the request of President Truman, uh, James Vincent Forrestal, Uh, might have been one of the individuals or might have been the person. Um, I tend to feel that it was um, a man named Sidney Sowers, who was a ranking admiral during World War II, and for the full Truman administration was Truman's number one intelligence advisor. Uh, He was also the first director of the CIA. And it might have gone as simple as this, that one of these individuals made an appointment to see somebody like David Sarnoff of NBC or William Randolph Hearst or um, whomever was, whichever brother was in charge of the Copley Empire or whoever the owner of the um, the Times was at the time. I can't remember if it was with the Ox or Sulzberger. And at that meeting, it could have gone one of two ways, essentially saying Obviously, you're in a position to be very aware of all these reports coming in of this unusual aerial phenomena. You know, there really isn't anything to it. It's war jitters. People are jumpy. We've been testing some V2 rockets, if you have to know. President, of course, understands that, you know, you'll keep this to yourself. And we are concerned about panic We're dealing with a a very touchy, uh, complex moment in our relationship with the Soviets. And people at the highest levels would consider it a personal favor if you would instruct your editors to instruct your reporters to play this down in every way. And you know what? Have a little fun with it. Or possibly as likely because these individuals who own these major media venues, they were all multimillionaires, the equivalent of billionaires now. They probably all thought of themselves as old fashioned patriots and very likely some of them were um, that they might have been told a version of the truth. And it might have been saying the president or not naming the president in any way to uh, preserve what we call plausible denial. Should the story blow up and uh, become an embarrassment to the administration that, in fact, there might be something to the possibility that these were not from here. And it was very important that the public absolutely not think that way. And then the pattern continued. Your question about MJ-12. In 1987, this story broke within the UFO research community. A few individuals had been brought into this subject a few years earlier, I think about 1984. But for most of us, it was brand new. News and possibly very exciting uh, break that there had been this highly secret working group in the Truman administration that may well have gone on under the same name or different names and, you know, incarnated and still existed as far as being core secret keepers. Over the years, since the initial eight page so called Eisenhower briefing document and the one page attachment. Uh, Truman's letter to um, Secretary Forrestal emerged that summer of '87. Hundreds of other documents have surfaced alleging to also have been generated from this Majestic 12 working group. After my own independent study, reading everything that I could on it by people who are, I thought, in. Much more uh, experienced scholars than I was, people like Stanton Friedman and the like. I came to feel, and I still feel, that initial release, those nine pages, are in fact authentic. It sent me off on my own little quest, and maybe I have friends or colleagues out there who uh, are old enough that they had similar experiences to figure out for myself every way that I could if these 12 individuals would have been the people to choose, if they might have known each other, if they you know were high enough within their specialty areas of expertise, that they would have been the ones that the president would have chosen for this working group to study the situation and hopefully come to si- some decision about it. However, I have really mixed feelings about so much of the other material that's followed. Stan Friedman has this wonderful phrase of uh, things that he's not sure about go in his gray box. I am convinced that there was a group called Majestic 12 that was set up under President Truman. Whether or not it has continued to follow a certain bloodline, so to say, and is still in existence or, you know, uh, was outdated some time back and its responsibilities taken over by various working groups within various agencies is pure speculation. That much I do take seriously.
2: Now, you know, of course, that people like Kevin Randall, who spent a lot of time in the military and also spent 30 years studying Roswell, he looked very carefully at MJ-12 and said there are too many inconsistencies here, and other people agree. This doesn't mean there wasn't something there, but MJ-12 as a document could be disinformation to cloud what really went on.
3: Oh, you're absolutely right. It could be. However, uh, somebody who I feel, again, is every bit as qualified to evaluate that information, who feels that on that initial group of documents, that initial document and the attached page, namely Stanton Friedman, says, no, there are too many consistencies to look at it as fraudulent. The material that followed is another question. But I would have to agree to disagree with my colleague uh, Kevin on that. And um take the position um, that Stan has, I think, very well established in his writings and research
2: about it. Who knows? Sure. Looking over the way the publishers reacted, right after World War II, they were patriotic Americans. They believed what the government told them. So if they gave him the right story, I could see where it might happen. But I think today, if any recent administration had gone to, say, Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, and said, hey, as a patriotic American," Here's what's going on. And we'd rather you not make a big deal of it. That would probably be on CNN by Anderson Cooper the next evening.
3: Might well. Yeah, we live in a very different world now. It's almost charming to think that back in the day when John Kennedy was president and doing some major womanizing, in part at the White House, the press corps that were on to him, and there were certainly members, distinguished members of the press corps who understood that he was involved with other women, worked to keep it secret to protect the office of the president, and that time is long past. It's everybody for themselves now, and, you know, TMZ, and let's get that photo of, you know, this star with this politician or whatever it's all about making money and sensationalism and a tabloid mindset and uh, our society is the worst for it as far as i'm concerned
2: so you think in this day and age maybe a lot of choices people made in terms of who might become president would not have happened certainly what happened to bill clinton in the 90s and he doesn't seem to have been near as big a player as jfk was correct if we had the same sensibility in the nineties, you'd never hear from it. You'd never hear about it. Okay, whatever yep. the person's doing, he's another adult. He carries on. Certainly, Newt Gingrich, who was Speaker of the House, <laughs> and he was one of the ringleaders of this impeachment. He was doing the same thing with his secretary.
3: Worse, he when his wife got cancer. He was cheating uh, on her with his next wife um, and so on. I, you know, the, the the levels of hypocrisy on both sides of the aisle are legend at this point. And most of us have so had it up to here with all of these do nothing characters in Washington who sit on their butts and collect their paychecks and refuse to even consider something that up until... 15 years ago or so was the american way which was find a point of compromise and work together even if you are not in agreement as opposed to nope real men don't compromise my way of the highway you know i'll let the government go bust before i concede to my ideological enemy politics by politicians is now seen as more important than serving the needs and the needs of the constituents and it's infuriating.
2: We've got more to come. Chris O'Brien is waiting for the internet to be turned on. We've got Peter Robbins and Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
2: That's the swag from the Paracast. If you go to store.theparacast.com, stop by and take a shopping tour.
22: Looking for that edge during those intimate moments? We see many ads for enhancement, but the side effects include death.
1: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
2: Certainly, Ronald Reagan must be turning over in his grave. We're not going to get into the deep, dark weeds of politics, but we'd have on one side Ronald Reagan, on the other side Tip O'Neill. And they do their thing from opposite sides of the spectrum politically, and then they'd have a couple of drinks after it was all over.
3: You're absolutely right, Gene, and I'll take that one step further. After Teddy Kennedy died, and, you know, I can hear people hissing at home who consider themselves uh, conservatives, whatever that word means anymore, arguably Kennedy was emblematic of the L word or progressives in government, very outspoken, very passionate member of the legendary Kennedy family, blah, 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 died of brain cancer. That was it. One of the most enlightening and moving interviews I've ever heard on the radio was, I guess it was the following weekend. I think the show was on a Saturday night and it was for a number of years, a interview public affairs show hosted by Ron Reagan Jr., who himself was a very progressive guy, is, and who loved his dad, but disagreed him with him politically, um, in the extreme sometimes. And it was I thought a really interesting show, because he often had guests on from his famous parents past, you know, any number of parts of public life. The week after Teddy Kennedy died, he had one guest, and the show was an hour or two, and that guest was Nancy Reagan, his mother. And she dropped a bomb on the American public, as far as I was concerned, because I consider myself, you know, pretty politically aware person, you know, more than some and less than others. But this was completely new to me. And I have to say, I found it extremely moving and very positive. They started to chat, you know, his mother and him, and they launched into the topic of the night, which was. For most listeners and, you know, uh, observers of political affairs, there probably were not two people in public life at the same time, further apart ideologically than Ronald Reagan and Edward Kennedy. But she said, you know, Ronnie, you know, because you grew up in the family and you had many opportunities to meet Teddy, your father and him didn't just like each other, weren't just friends. They loved each other they would do anything for each other. And that launched into a wonderful series of stories about things that these two extremely famous men who publicly were associated with diametric opposites of the political spectrum had gone out of their way to do for each other, for each other's families, for each other's friends, selflessly picking up the tab on certain things because they loved each other and at their heart, They respected each other, even though they agreed to disagree on many very important core issues. You cite Reagan and Tip O'Neill, though. Uh, They were a wonderful epitome of a president and a speaker of the House who were ideologically opposed to each other, but understood that their first responsibility to the American people was not to be responsible first to their party leadership. It was to do everything they could to make this country as decent a place as they could, as livable a place, and to help as many people as possible in the process realistically. Compromise was what was looked up to by people like Jefferson and the other founding fathers. I think they would all be disgusted beyond belief if they saw the arrogance and this horrible, horrible cloud that has settled on our House and our Senate of these jerks who refuse to work together because they see their first alliance to the people that donate to their campaigns and to their party leadership, not to the people who elect them, not to the people they serve, and certainly not for the greater good of the United States of America, and it stinks.
2: One final example before we get back to our subject of the day, and that is Barry Goldwater, the conservative, the conscience of the conservative, and George McGovern. hmm they were very good friends. They go on TV together and debate back and forth. You bet. And that's another example. You can't have that today. Let's just move on with our subject. So in effect, then we had this silence group from the U.S. government going to the media. And that practice kept on for a, a speculatively. long Speculatively.
3: Again, um, sure. speculatively.
2: No, I'm not okay. saying it's definite. We're talking about a theory. It's not that we necessarily can prove it, but that takes us back to disclosure, yeah. the big D word. That's right. Now, I can see in the early years, certainly some UFO sightings were probably test aircraft of some kind, national security. Other things were happening they couldn't explain, but they could use the national security umbrella to get the media to not talk about it. You bet. So now, what's going on today? Do you think there's anyone organizing the government to do this anymore, do you think that the media would even care anymore? Because it's so pervasive. Well,
3: yeah, good question. Number one, the mania for secret keeping that arguably really kicked into overdrive with Bush, Clinton, Obama, and to a degree, I have no idea what's going on in the Trump administration, but under Clinton, and W alone, as I recall, tens of millions of bits of information were classified. Um, we do truly live in a national security state. I happen to see the birth of that national security state. That piece of sand inside the oyster that it built up that calcification around to keep from getting irritated was the UFO cover up. The whole cover up, the whole national security state, the whole mania for a a state built on secret keeping began the summer of 1947 now how many people do you think now working within the proper offices and the national archives and various branches of the government are cleared to review material that is right and properly filed or not right and properly filed as a national secret of some level are cleared to even review the material in the National Archives, bring it to the attention of higher-ups, and say, I think the classification on this should be reduced, or I think that this should be unclassified. We are so over our head in secrets compared to the people who are charged with the responsibility of declassification. That part of it's over. I think also the desire to declassify things that inevitably would prove embarrassing to people who are living and people who people in power still revere and could embarrass them because they're the same political party or they knew their father or whatever. Perfect example. In Truman's day, had he had the wherewithal, had he, let's say, MJ-12 was real, he went to his 12 guys after six months and said, you know what, we've studied this damn thing, I'm not going to take your advice that this study committee, go on into perpetuity because we don't know what's going to happen if I go on the radio and say, my fellow Americans, it's my solemn duty to tell you blah, 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 and boy, wouldn't the world have changed forever right then and there if that had happened. I can't help thinking maybe for the better, but now no president on their own, or even with the tacit approval of just some other world leaders could do it. It would have to be done in a very carefully coordinated way, reaching out to the world's religious leaders, leaders in the study of mass psychology, militarists, uh, people who could say, no, you can't make that announcement because The economy will crash for a number of understandable reasons before it comes back. More to the point, if a president, let's say it could happen, let's say it was Obama or let's say, you know, tomorrow night, uh, President Truman, uh, Truman, (laughs) uh, if only President Trump goes on television and says, my fellow Americans, it's my solemn duty to inform you that I have learned definitively that the earth has been visited by intelligences from beyond Earth for, you know, since uh, 70 years at least and probably longer. And we are going to begin the process of declassification.
2: More to come. Fascinating stuff with Peter Robbins. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in... The Paracast. Neighbors, I want to tell you about my favorite graphics app. It's the award-winning Graphic Converter. You know, Graphic Converter is the universal genius for photo editing on your Mac. Join over one and a half million loyal users for this Swiss Army Knife photo editing app. It gives you all you expect from a top-flight image editing app with tons of features. And most important, it's easy to use. It's also far less expensive than that other app that you can only get by subscription. You know, the one I'm talking about. What's more, you can get 20% off with your order right now. So write this down to learn about Graphic Converter. Go to www.lemkesoft.de slash gene. Let me spell that. www.lemkesoft.de
23: slash gene. It's been said.
18: You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com. And if you decide you like it and want to connect with people, use the code George for a substantial discount.
21: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the
1: Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
2: Okay, so President Donald J. Trump goes to the airwaves Not on Twitter. This is not a Twitter thing. (laughs) This is on the airwaves. You know, Twitter doesn't make it. Maybe it would, you know. Hey, E.T. is real. His
3: style? Yeah, probably that's the way he would do it. Okay, Um, whatever
2: it is, he makes the announcement.
3: He couldn't make the announcement because it would mean he would be admitting that every single president that preceded him, ones that he liked and admired, ones that he hated, ones that were in the same political party, ones that are different political party ones that shared his political beliefs others that were endemic to them would then become immediately unindicted co-conspirators in the greatest conspiracy in history some might even consider it on a moral level a criminal conspiracy the club of past presidents is very small they're not going to rat each other out love those pictures of the few that are left Always standing together smiling, didn't it matter how they stood ideologically toward each other, now they're just one little big happy family. It could
2: never happen that way. So those like a Stephen Bassett who are hoping yep. for disclosure. Yes, and working. It very would hard have to it. happen by some external event. They couldn't control it.
3: Well, once again, theoretical. First I have to say there is no person in the entire field of ufology, call it what you will, more dedicated to a goal than Stephen Bassett. And he should be respected and lauded for it. He's a remarkable guy. The disclosure movement that he has done so much to put into place, not just in this country and around the world, and it is a worldwide movement, is made up of good people in more countries than most of us imagine. And at their best, they are working in small groups to educate and inform their fellow citizens that this is a serious subject and should be taken seriously. Will that result in a critical mass of people in any given national population to push their government to the point where their government will, in fact, declassify the information they have on these subjects? Maybe. I tend to be kind of circumspect on that I don't think it's going to happen here, certainly. We are the country where it started. We were the one to set in motion the um, national security state reaction to this extraordinary secret and to admit it, I think would be so embarrassing to powerful people, to the legacy of powerful people that no small group of individuals who are temporarily in power like our current crop of elected officials, would have the nerve or the desire to set it in motion. What happens if the stock market did crash? What happens if there was panic in the streets? What happens if, you know, people started running absolutely wild? They're not going to want to take responsibility for it. So why even bother? When it comes, it may well come. The same way that the Vietnam War sort of busted open and turned around and then became a non-war was because Daniel Ellsberg, a a very distinguished psychiatrist, uh, released a file that the Pentagon had kept showing the hypocrisy, the lies and the absolute waste that this war was. We were propping up an incredibly corrupt regime, the Diem family in in, uh, Vietnam And it was all about power and money and world influence and not about if we leave Vietnam, the whole Southeast Asia is going to collapse the domino theory, so to say. And, you know, it will all be communist and just, you know, annex itself to China. Um, It may come in the form of something from a WikiLeaks type thing. It may come from who knows, maybe they up there will get tired of playing footsie with us on this and simply make their presence known in no uncertain terms. I don't know. I see us as a world full of aware people to one degree or another or people who are waking up to the reality that we are not alone in the universe and that there are implications to consider for humanity. To a larger group of people, many of them as nice and kind and well-meaning and public-spirited and contributing to our societies as we can imagine, who are sleepwalking their way through it because they, in quotes, know that it's not true. How do they know it? Because it can't be. Therefore, it isn't. Therefore, it's something else. How do I know that? Hey, you only have to go back to read you know, all the newspapers going back to the 40s. Everybody knows it's not true. It's misinterpretations of conventional phenomena. To take that a step further, in 1947, I am convinced that a very large percentage, if not the great, great majority of legitimate, seemingly anomalous UFO sightings may well have been in that category. Now, I don't know. We have stuff up in the air that many folks who don't follow this subject would think is still in the realm of science fiction. (laughs) We human beings are responsible for things that could be regarded as paranormal, uh, to the perceiver. I would say that a percentage of UFO sightings now are certainly truly anomalous UFOs, but they're harder and harder to discern. Mark D'Antonio, uh, uh, a scientist who is, I think, one of the the finest speakers on the UFO circuit, um, who is Mufon's chief um, photographic analyst, among other things. Brilliant guy and one of the nicest people in the field too.
2: He um, has been on the show for a couple of times. So we've enjoyed his presence. Yeah,
3: Mark's the best, and you know, he's kind of moved into the spot that for such a long time uh, was taken by um, the great Dr. Bruce McAbee, uh an optical physicist who worked under contract for the Navy for decades, um, now semi-retired, but for decades, he was the go-to guy on the final word on photo analysis, um, again, with digital manipulation of images, and many people who are not that rigorous, um, like I used to be, um, in their investigative techniques, to absolutely confirm and chase down real witnesses, the factual nature of a claim attached to a photograph or a piece of moving footage that purports to be an anomalous object in the sky or what have you. Um, It's like the old X-File poster, I want to believe. We live in a world of people who want to believe. Um, Last month when Richard Dolan and I were in Athens, Greece, speaking at a scientific conference there, a colleague of ours, this question had come up, and I had mentioned the wording on that iconic poster, and he responded by saying, ah, I don't want to believe, I want to know. That's not the way it is for many people in society. They're entertained by this, they're carried along. Um, Somebody comes in who may be known in public life, or who has books out, or they've seen on television and they make a pronouncements like, gosh, you know, that person's something of an authority. They're famous anyway. So maybe it is true that all aliens are friendly.
2: That's a good <laughs> point to pick up the final two guess. segments with Peter <laughs> Robbins are aliens friendly. But let's just talk about this first. <laughs> More to come. Gene Steinberg, Peter Robbins, you're in. The Paracast. <laughs>
9: Ralph, remember when you said you were going to start paying more attention to your health and now you're eating potato chips? Just a few. A few, okay, but you should be eating Superberries Aronia Berries.
15: Aroni what?
9: Aronia Berries from SuperBerries.com. They're known for having one of the highest levels of antioxidants that helps with overall wellness. Go to SuperBerries.com slash radio. And right now we get a free smoothie recipe book with our order. Plus we can save $4 at checkout. Wow,
14: look at all the benefits of these berries.
9: I know, Ralph, I know. Choose
17: health, eat purple, SuperBerries.com.
11: Are you one of the 15 million men who suffer from an enlarged prostate? If your life revolves around finding the closest bathroom, if you're tired of waking up many times a night to urinate, then you need to know about Prostate Miracle. Prostate Miracle contains beta-cytosterol, which is 3,000 times stronger than salt palmetto. metal. To claim your $10 Patriot discount, go to ProstateMiracle.com and enter promo code PATRIOT or call 877-965-2140. That's 877-965-2140.
24: What if Extendivite really works, but you find that hard to believe, and you spend precious time looking for someone to say, just try it? I have my help today because of Extendivite, and if I did not take a leap of faith and try it, well, I would be on disability today. Take one bottle of Extendivite as suggested for 60 days to find out for yourself. No need to stop any other meds you may be on. You know by now that they are not working for you. Before the 60 days are up, I know that you will feel Extendivite working for you and will want to take another bottle. Life is too short. Get your Extendivite today. Extendivite is available in capsule or liquid form for just $69.95 for a two-month supply. To get started, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or
12: visit heartdrop.com.
9: Life with
12: How did you become addicted? A friend? Were you at a party and someone said, hey, try this? Then you got the cold sweats and started shaking. And the more you did it, the more it didn't work. So you switched to the needle. Now you're a train wreck. Drinking, drugging, broke. Your family hates you. And you hate you. Get out of your hell on earth now. Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline today for immediate help. In many cases, your insurance may cover the costs. We can't guarantee it, but we can guarantee we have what you need to change your life for the better. Pick up your cell phone and call right now. 855-700-2979. 855-700-2979. 855-700-2979. That's 855-700-2979.
13: you may be at the top of their hit list. So don't take your tax debt lightly because it will not go away on its own. The IRS can seize your bank accounts, your home, and even shut down your business. Call our tax experts today at 1-800-765-9681 and let us deal with the IRS while you focus on your business. That's 1-800-765-9681. Again, that's eight hundred seven six five nine six eight one. 800 765 9681
5: this is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books.
22: You're listening to the Paracast.
2: You bring up the entertainment factor, and I wanted to kind of jump on this because last week we had Ron James, a documentary producer, and he's currently like involved him. in a project with. Ron's great. Yeah. And I have fun with him because I like him, but I disagree with him because I think he is more involved in the entertainment factor. Mm -hmm. And thus, some of the people he presents, and this is a problem I have with Stephen Bassett too, are really less credible than they should be. And maybe they should be more circumspect in what they present. And the argument I had with that, of course, with MUFON, and they've got this session now with some really... Wacky speakers on the Secret Space program for the next conference, which is happening coming up, probably as many of you are listening to the show. So that's one thing right there. So that's an argument there that we present UFO information today in the most entertaining way possible. The TV reality shows, Hangar One, based on MUFON, we have these people who are entertainers and maybe they have some interesting information. But more than likely, they might be just making it up. And that's a problem, because we are showing people today that the UFO mystery is not an amazing scientific mystery that may change the world. If we get down to the truth of it, it is entertainment.
3: Well, let me... um Jump in and just run back to the beginning of this segment and say, before you throw out the baby with the bathwater, Ron, who is an outstanding producer, and yes, of course, most of his work is in the entertainment business, uh, he was instrumental in the production of what I think is one of the finest credible scientifically backed and methodically produced documentaries relative to any UFO subject. And that is Travis, the true story of Travis Walton, executive producer, uh, Jennifer Stein. It is a feature length documentary that came out, I guess, about a year and a half ago now and has one gosh, maybe if it's in longer now, maybe it's even two and a half years, I think it is, uh, has won any number of major film festival awards and minor film festival awards. Without Ron, I don't know if it would have been quite as good as it is. Uh, however, you're right, the subject is been not commandeered, but in terms of the media, the media is primarily the moving media, television uh, certainly, and um, cable and its, uh, its progeny is about entertainment. And so much of what passes for UFO information sources now in the visual media comes under the caveat to a degree of entertainment Uh, a good example for me is the tremendous popularity and success of the program by my old friend Giorgio of um, ancient aliens I think that when they started um, it was galvanizing Um, if you accept that we are not alone and that there are other intelligences that come and go based on the historical record it is a bit naive to think it just kicked in in 1947. It does go back millennia. However, after X number of episodes and X number of seasons, to find fully authentic um, cases that, you know, I set the bar pretty high for myself, but in entertainment uh, slash education, it's a little bit more variable. I think that every season that passes, we are asked to take more and more leaps of faith. Um, If a a photograph is presented or we're on location somewhere in a remote part of Australia and we're looking at an aboriginal cave painting, you know, that's 30,000 years old of what's obviously a human face with very large black eyes and lines radiating out of the head, some because you've got to have content. Um, and you want ratings and you want people to believe. I want to believe, not um, necessarily it's the truth, but we know that it's it's, it's truthy, <laughs> that some might say aliens, of course, look at the large black eyes, look at the lines of energy radiating, radiating out of their head. My first thought would be hmm, charcoal rubbed onto the area around the eyes and a simple armature of a stick that is green uh, with other sticks coming out of it for some ceremonial purpose and that's it it's not a reference to ancient aliens, it's a reference to an ancient being who lived that might have been involved in a ceremony involving a headdress of sticks with um, charcoal rubbed around their eyes Um, there's a wonderful old phrase uh, that I heard Judge Judy Uh, use a a variation on some years ago when a particularly idiotic uh, uh, alleged perpetrator appeared before her in court. And her response was, um, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. Um, You know, use your common sense, use your critical thinking. Um, Yes, this is a subject that now, more or less, is dominated by elements within the entertainment industry In part, working with legitimate scholars and qualified researchers to produce a product, to sell time, to get ratings, to get producers other jobs as they move forward in their careers, to get people like me, who do bloody little of that, um, because I'm not asked, um, you know, another couple of minutes on television. Cool. so it's it's kind of a, a monster that feeds itself. Not that it's necessarily bad in that for many people who now have begun to really take the subject of other intelligences and high technology from parts unknown visiting us and not ha-ha, flying saucers and little green men, they have cut their teeth on these shows and now go to conferences and read the books, listen to shows like the Paracast, and educate themselves and tell their friends about it too. So again, it is a double-edged sword.
2: You know, speaking of entertainment, there is a published report that Robert Zemeckis is producing a new TV show called Blue Book. Uh-huh. And it sci-fi. It fictionalizes Project Blue Book and their investigations in the 50s and 60s. And it follows the lead character Named Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And I sure hope his family is getting a lot of money to use his likeness.
22: <laughs> well, you know, there was you... a
2: story here. We had the gentleman who wrote this biography of Hynek. And he revealed that in his participation in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Dr. Hynek. Sure. Okay.
3: He played himself in a cameo at the end.
2: Right, and contributed something as a technical advisor. Do you know how much money he earned? No. (laughs) $3,500. Hollywood. (laughs) But Then again, hit TV shows (laughs) like The Rockford Files with James Garner on for a number of years in syndication. He was supposed to get a share of the profits. But, of course... The production company said there were none. They were losing money. Right.
3: Well, one can hope that his daughter, James Garner, was a heck of an actor. And from everything I understand, a really nice guy and um, played a very key role in the film Fire in the Sky about the Travis Walton incident, a film that um, um, we all know has certain flaws but has some real strength as well. And he played um, Sheriff Gillespie, the chief law enforcement officer examining this. One can only hope that his daughter, who is alive and well, um, is getting royalties that her father was due on the rebroadcasts of that great old period show from the 70s.
2: One can only hope, but this is Hollywood. So, yep. they, you know, look, hawaii 50 decided not to play pay the asian actors as much as the white actors <laughs> and therefore they left they have two actors of korean descent and god oh, i don't know Ridiculous. Yeah. it is really is But we else? got more to come and it's not going to be about the entertainment industry that would be the other show whatever that is with peter robbins gene steinberg you're in the paracast <laughs>
9: listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
2: As you know, neighbors, web hosting can be pretty cheap, but not all hosting is the same. DreamHost wins best of awards year after year. You get unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, and even the low-cost plans put your sites on high-performance SSDs. Want to know more about what DreamHost has to offer? Go to technightowl.com/host. Once again, that's technightowl.com/host.
19: Will the government protect your family from Iran and North Korea's newest weapon, EMP? We buy guns to protect ourselves. Home, health, and car insurance for accidents. Maybe you also have food storage. But how would you keep your refrigerator running in a long-term EMP blackout? Using tested military designs, the Solark EMP-hardened solar generator protects and powers your critical appliances for years without burying items underground or wrapping them in aluminum foil. Unlike other preps, Solark is used every day to
5: This is Robert Hastings,
18: author of UFOs and Nukes, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
2: So we have Peter Robbins joining us, and we're doing a lot of catch-up here on different things. And before I get into one final subject, before we let him leave, out there with Elvis, leave the building... (laughs) Okay, all this old pop culture stuff. We should do a pop culture show maybe someday. We do that sometimes on my other show, The Tech Night Out Live, where I'm very much into comic books and superheroes. And we talk about that with a guy named Jeff Gamet. In any case, let's just progress here. All right, so we have UFOs and the entertainment factor. We have these reality shows that aren't really documentaries per se. They're all about entertainment. And maybe the information is largely or at least partially accurate. But does that hurt getting the truth out there, whatever that truth is, by being immersed in some form of entertainment? I guess that's a
3: case-by-case question, I think. The term reality show, for me, is one of the great oxymorons of our time. They're anything but, as a rule, what passes for reality is total scripted hype, with real people, untrained actors, the genesis of reality shows is MTV's, which was the first venue to produce a reality show. And I'm blanking on the name of the show, but it was a bunch of college kids living in the same house and being filmed having, you know, their ups and downs together. It was an awful lot cheaper to produce an hour or a half an hour segment than it was to do you know, a segment of Law and Order, where you are paying real actors to play by real scripts written by talented screenwriters played out in real locations, you know, union rules rule. I I think it's, it's really been one of the most destructive things to our culture on a certain level. And be that as it may, I think there are some good shows with UFO themes that draw upon people in the work are trying to do good work, and it sometimes is captured by the producers of a show. Hopefully more of that happens because they made some money on it, and gee, we don't have to dumb this thing down. We can do a quality show here with real people that have earned the right to um, speak to the public from locations, and um, let's try to elevate the dialogue rather than make it more and more cartoon-like or more sensational. That seems to be the way the media continues to drift, with very little to anchor it to a more noble or more intelligent place in the universe.
2: Let me just throw out this full circle comment, as you might not know. Dr. J. Allen Hynek's son, Joel Hynek, is an Academy Award-winning special effects artist who's Hmm. worked on sci-fi films. I had no idea. What Dreams May Come. Remember that film with Robin Williams? Oh, sure. F- yes. Spectacular special effects. That's what he won the Oscar for. He also did the Predator uh, films. Huh. New to me. Full circle. Go figure. Okay, in our final <laughs> few minutes here, let's bring this back here. All this stuff going on around us, this history of the UFO field, the silence group, all these things, all the things that are involved abductions and sightings and possibly reflecting the UFO story more as entertainment than as factual material. The hope for disclosure. And this is going to take more than five minutes, which is all we have left, but that's how the clock goes. Where do we go from here? Where do we take it?
3: Well, that is a big question. I think it begins with the individual, even though that's not a, a, a very popular thought That everybody listening to this show, to the many shows that are out there in the United States and abroad, they can be small podcasts, they can be well-established shows, they can be internet-driven, they can be on major networks, that we all do our best to keep our critical facilities sharp, if we're serious about the subject, to educate ourselves, not to take this person's word because they're famous for this reason or that, not to just accept an image because it's kind of cool that we see on the internet, but to do our homework, to really study it as finances allow, go to a conference, meet some of the people whose work you grow to respect or that stand out in a television documentary or that you know you heard on a radio show like this. Let me cut myself off here and say on a positive note, something I'm seeing more and more as I travel the country and abroad and speak with people at conferences or speak with people um, in radio audiences or uh, at talks that I give. Um, more and more people seem to care less and less what other people think about what they think about this subject. And that in its quiet way, is major. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have said that. You could meet a couple who really took it seriously, but it was kind of their private life, and they were not interested in potentially embarrassing themselves to talk to their friends that they know socially or people that they know from work or their relatives that they do take it seriously. Twenty-and-thirty-somethings, almost all of them, don't even consider Um, the alternative to, well, of course, we're not alone in the universe. And of course, the forces that be, you know, keep it from us. The reason that, you know, I'm not obsessing on it or spending all my time looking at it is I'm competing in a job market in a crazy economy. I'm inundated with distractions. Um, When I do have a little downtime, I have all these high tech things that entertain me. I'm in uh, a world where I'm busy all the time on a certain level. The people that I'm seeing who are really more and more being more outspoken, coming to the conferences, talking to other people about it and outing themselves, so to say, are in the 50 to the 70 plus group. People who have had, you know, very much uh, coming into the golden age of their work lives or have retired. Maybe lucky enough to have a little discretionary spending going to conferences, and they don't care anymore what other people think, who for years they would have cared. Think about how seriously they take the subject. They could care less about somebody saying, gee, flying saucers and little green men, because they know they're idiots to say it. I think that's a really healthy trend, but it's not changing geometrically. It's changing arithmetically. Five, seven, nine, thirteen 13 people at a time, not five, seven, nine, 50,000, 80,000, 600,000, a million point eight people at a time. What it will take to make that jump is what people like Steve Bassett are trying to focus in on. I think it may be something that just comes out of the blue hits us between the eyes when we expect at least maybe it will be in the form of an undeniable dump of information unauthorized previously classified information that a julian assange or somebody like that just lets out and you can't get that toothpaste back in the tube and that they have been working for time for decades for millennia if you want to look at it that way to get us ready for the fact that we have neighbors And they're here and they'd like to get back their part of the real estate or interact with us on a more active level. Again, it's all speculation, isn't it, Gene?
2: Peter Robbins, please tell our listeners if they want to know more about what you do, where can they go?
3: My website is being worked on right now, PeterRobbins.com. But I post announcements of every place I'm going to be and every show I'm going to do on my Facebook page. There are other Peter Robbinses out there. One of them is a dear friend who's in Washington State. I'm the Peter Robbins listed as Ithaca, New York. I've just weaned out my uh, friends list a bit. So I do have some room for more friends and glad to include you if you're interested in following what I'm doing. My next public situation will be at a terrific conference in Exeter, New Hampshire on Saturday, September 2nd. And thanks for having me back on the show, Gene.
2: You can find us on Twitter, look for the Paracast, look for the Paracast fan clubs, both of them on Facebook and look for the Paracast Plus to get this show without the commercials, plus the After the Paracast radio show, a podcast exclusively available if you subscribe to the Paracast Plus. To learn more, go to plus.theparacast.com. That's P-L-U-S.theparacast.com and check out our official Paracast YouTube channel. Peter Robbins, thank you for joining us on the Powercast.
3: You're most welcome, and it's been great to be back on the show. And let's see how things shake down over the next weeks and months and years. <laughs>